give the angels charge over the Son. And he confronted his uh, accusers by saying, at my word, I can call upon those angels. And you could not do anything to me except that I give myself unto you. And whenever we read the narrative of our Lord's execution, the writers of the Gospels tell us about those who were gathered at Calvary, who were the eyewitnesses of the atonement of Jesus, including the disciples and Jesus' mother, Mary. But in this song that we've just heard, our attention was drawn away from that to those who had been given the responsibility from the Father to protect Jesus at every moment. And yet, when that time came for Him to be delivered for our transgressions, the Father put a halt on the angelic protection that surrounded Jesus. So those angels had to stand by and watch. And I just wonder what was going through their minds on that occasion. You know, this is one of the the things that music can do to add to our spirit of worship and adoration, to stir our hearts and souls and minds, to focus our attention on things that we don't ordinarily think about. So thank you, Jim, again for that music. We're going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we are still in Romans 8, and this evening I'll be beginning at verse 18, and God willing, read through verse 28. And so I'd like to ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit's Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, 
But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things worked together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for those promises that come to us from Thy Word, promises that can't possibly be broken. We thank You for the consolation of Israel that rests in these divine and certain promises that come to us from You. We thank You not only for the faith that You have brought to our souls through the power of regeneration. We thank You also for the hope that maketh not ashamed. Tonight as we contemplate these further promises of the future that come to us in Thy Holy Word, we pray that Your Spirit would intercede for us in terms of our understanding and for our spiritual growth. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In our last session and study of Romans chapter 8, we considered the extraordinary grace and blessedness that comes with our having been adopted by the Father into the family of God so that we have become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, so that all that the Father gives to the Son is shared with all of those who are united to the Son by faith. But now, apart from that mention of the supreme blessedness of our adoption, Paul now considers once more the afflictions, the trials, the tribulation, the pain, and the suffering that is such an integral part of this veil of tears through which we walk in this world. If you've been watching the television at all this week, as jaded as we are to daily scenes of upheaval and violence in the world, it seems like those activities have been turned up another notch. And one brief look at the television news leaves us with the question, has the world gone crazy? Violence upon violence, hostility upon hostility, suffering, blood, death, all around us in this world. And when we look at the reality of that violence and the suffering that comes in its wake, 
we pause at times and wonder, where is God in all of this? I think of the skepticism that was uttered by the philosopher John Stuart Mill when he considered the manifest presence of pain and suffering and violence and wickedness in this world. He said that what we encounter out there daily belies any hope of a good God who is a God of love. He said if God is a God of love and allows the pain and suffering that goes on in this world because He's powerless to prevent it or to stop it when it occurs, then He must not be omnipotent. He must be a divine weakling who's incapable of administering peace and justice in this world. If, on the other hand, He has the power to prevent this evil or to stop it when it arises, but chooses not to, but stands by and allows it to continue, then He may be powerful, but is not good. He is not loving. But the complaint that Mill raised against historic Christianity is you can't have it both ways. Either God is good but not all-powerful, or He's all-powerful and not good. But what is missing from that oversimplified equation in the economy of grief and pain in this world is the reality of the basis of God's not only toleration of violence and suffering in this world, but His actual ordaining of it is the reality of human sin. It's not that God lacks in goodness, it's that we lack in goodness. And because of the entrance into this world of human sin, the whole creation has been plunged into ruin. Not just people, but animals. The land itself, the earth mourns because of us. When the transgression came in paradise, the curse of God extended beyond Adam and beyond Eve and even beyond the serpent where the land itself was cursed. And again and again through the prophetic oracles of the Old Testament when God chastens His people Israel for their hard-necked disobedience, He said, because of you, and you do not listen to My Word, and violence follows upon violence, because of you the land mourns, the ground suffers. That when the Bible considers the condition of fallenness that we experience in this world, the Bible always considers this, dear friends, in cosmic terms, not merely in terms of the human species, but that the ruination 
of the whole creation is laid at our doorstep. And it reflects God's judgment upon us, which spills over into that domain for which we were created to be God's vice regents, to be those made in His image who were to have dominion over the earth, over the animals, over the ground, over the vegetation. And when we are ruined, everything under our dominion is infected by that ruination. And that's what Paul is concerned about here in the scope of the epistle. But first of all, he sets a contrast between the present and the future, between the present sufferings and the future glory that God has prepared for His people. But he is quick to point out to us that this is not a simple contrast that has a certain uh, formula of ratio and proportionality to it. There's no analogy between the present climate of pain and the future climate of blessedness. The comparative here is in terms of how much more. Paul, who is so articulate, even under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, can't seem to find words to describe the radical difference between the now and the then. Listen to what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared for the glory that shall be revealed in us. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the difference between the present degree of pain that we experience and the blessedness to which God has appointed His people is so immensely different that there's no way to compare them. Any comparison that we could seek to utter would fall short. It would be not worthy of description. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. Listen to this. He does not say, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not real. They're just an illusion. Paul's not a practitioner of Christian science. He understood in a visceral way, in a way that few of us have ever had to experience, the stark reality of human suffering. One of the most persecuted, afflicted men who ever graced this fallen planet was the Apostle Paul. Indeed, his Savior was more acquainted with grief and sorrow than he was, but of all the rest of mankind, there would be few who would approach Paul's personal experience of suffering. But he shook off that suffering in light of the hope that God had given to us in Jesus Christ. And he said, folks, 
it's not even worthy to talk about this compared to what God has laid up for us in the future. Sometimes Christians have been mocked and ridiculed for their hope of heaven, their hope of future redemption, and we're told that this is pie in the sky. Karl Marx believed that religion was invented for economic reasons because, he said, in the society that's dominated by class, that those who are the owners are always in the minority over those who are the workers. And he said, if ever the majority of those who labor would understand the strength that they had in numbers, that they would rise up in revolt against the owners and take for themselves the plunder of their own labor. He says, but ah, the owners have been smart. They have found a way to keep the workers in line. They gave them religion and gave them the promise of a future benefit. In the meantime, their lives were in chains and in sweat and toil, while the owners laughed, according to Marx, all the way to the bank. Consider that in the American experiment with slavery, that if you look carefully at some of the songs that enrich our hymnody, you hear the motif of the slave who sings, swing low, sweet chariot. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me. The only hope that slave had was in another world, in heaven. And Mark said, see? It's opium. It's a narcotic given to dull the senses, to minister to the pain, to give people hope when there is no hope. I don't believe that. I believe that God's promises are eternal, immutable, unbreakable. And again and again and again, he says to his people, yes, the pain now is real, but wait. We're not finished yet. I have a plan for this planet. I have a plan for my people. And that plan is glorious. I have established my son upon his throne. And I have called a people to myself that I give as a gift to my son, that together with him they will reign forever and ever, and that his redemption will extend far beyond the realm of the human. It will include within it every dimension of this planet. The whole world 
which has been plunged into ruin, will be redeemed. There will be a renovation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Because you see, folks, this is our Father's world. It is His property. It is He who has made it, not we ourselves. And He may dispose of this world however He sees fit, and He has seen fit to appoint it for glory for those who love His coming. And so Paul is eloquent here, rhapsodic in considering the future promise, considering that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Let me just say something off the subject here. If you follow along when I'm reading from the Scripture, and sometimes you notice I don't read exactly what's here, I just did it again. I did it several times this morning. It drives me nuts that these guys write which when it should be that. Didn't they go to grammar school? Don't they know the difference between that and which in the English language? Drives me nuts. So I can hardly bear to read the incorrect grammar of the English translations. Excuse me for that. I'm going to say that they're not worthy to be compared with the glory. That shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Here is a kind of personification. Even the impersonal forces of nature, which in Hebrew poetry are brought into the arena of celebrating God's redemption, the hills clap their hands. The oxen, the sheep rejoice in the expectation of what's in the future. I've talked about this before, but I have a friend here in the congregation who's taken me hunting many times. And when he does, that's an exercise in patience for him. Stop me if I'm lying. And usually it goes something like this. He guides me safely into the woods, finds me a nice tree stand, and helps me up into the tree stand. And he says, are you all right? And I say, yes, I'm fine. He says, now, I'll be back at a certain time. Don't worry. Don't move. And he's, he feels it's his moral responsibility to see to it that I get out of the woods alive. And then he goes off and finds a place to lie down and go to sleep. <laughs> but something I always notice when we go deeply into the hammocks, into the woods to go hunting, when you walk into the woods, the woods are absolutely silent. There's not a bird singing. There's no turkey gobbling. It's just silent. You can hear your own footsteps as you go. But once you climb up into the tree stand and stay there quietly for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, then you'll begin to hear the chatter of the squirrels, the songs of the bird, the gobbling of the turkeys, and the woods come alive. Why? What made it so quiet when you walked in there? 
I've sat in tree stands and I've looked down from my tree stand and I have seen wild boar here, four or five turkeys over here, and a couple of deer over here feeding. I've seen all three varieties of beasts coexisting in the wild in a spirit of peace. But let them know that man is present. And this pall of fear falls over the bird, the squirrel, the deer, the turkey. It wasn't supposed to be like that. It was supposed to be that the animals would rejoice in the presence of the one to whom God gave dominion over them. But now the animals suffer because of us, and they're no longer comfortable when we intrude into their domain. But these dumb brutes, as they are called, have an earnest expectation, a conviction of hope for the day when that will all change, when the glory of God will be revealed in us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Boy, that word futility is one of the ugliest words in the English language. Nothing could possibly be worse. Nothing could possibly drive a human being to despair more quickly, more deeply, than the idea that our pain, our labor, that these things are merely exercises in futility, meaningless, that the human experience is like the myth of Sisyphus, who uses all of his energy to push that gigantic rock to the top of the mountain so that as soon as he gets to the top, the rock falls back to the bottom, and he has been sentenced to push it back to the top again and again and again forever in a labor that is in vain. In contrast to that, the apostle elsewhere in the first chapter, the first book of the Corinthians, the 15th chapters, 15th chapter, he says, now we know that we ought to be steadfast, immovable, because we know that our labor in Christ Jesus is not in vain. That's the hope of the gospel that your pain is not meaningless. Your toil is not futile. That every ounce of effort that we expend in this world, every tear that falls across our cheek is not meaningless, is not futile, but for the present time, the whole creation has been subjected to this appearance of futility. And it was not by vote 
The human race, along with the animal kingdom, did not go to the polls and say, we vote, dear God, to have to endure pain and tribulation and travail all of our days. No. This was by divine decree. This world is filled with pain and suffering, not because God is not good, but because He is good and because He will not tolerate evil and because of our sin, God has subjected the entire creation to pain, to affliction, and to sin. So the next time you hurt and you become angry with God and you shake your fist in His face and say, why me? Listen for the reply, why not? The real question of why is why God in His grace should store up for us in heaven a glory and blessedness that's not worthy to be compared with the pain that we endure even now. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, we've been reading here in Paul's epistle, and we've seen that what the gospel has done, what the power of Christ has done, has been to deliver us. We are people who by nature are in bondage. But what he's just explained with the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been set free. We're no longer under those bonds of sin. We have been released from that incarceration. We have been set free. And that release from bondage does not end with us. The goal of the gospel, the goal of the finished work of Christ is to rescue the entire creation so that the land will stop mourning. The animals will no longer be afraid. And though nature may be red in tooth and fang, that bloody crimson violence will be done away with in the new heaven and the new earth where the lion will lay down with the lamb. And so he says, the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty, just as they have, the created world has suffered with our pain because of our sin, so the whole creation will participate in the liberation from the consequences of sin at the time of the manifestation of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Do you see the metaphor? It is the metaphor of the woman 
in labor, who is at that threshold of pain before she gives birth that seems excruciating. She cries. She groans. Paul says the whole creation is like that, crying, groaning in birth pangs. But the pain of that labor is not worthy to be compared with the joy that follows when the child is born. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. What? We've already been adopted. There's a present sense in which we experience the adoption into the family of God, but there's still a not yet dimension, a full completion of what it means to be adopted when we receive the inheritance that is stored up for us in heaven. How wonderful is it when we hear that promise that God will say, come my beloved, inherit the kingdom that I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's our expectation. That's our hope. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? You remember the three great virtues, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. We talk about love. We talk about faith all the time. But we rarely talk about hope. But Paul is constantly talking about hope. And when he talks about hope, he's not using that term hope in the way we use it in our common expression. We usually use the term hope to express our desire for some future result which is uncertain. You ask me, how do you think the Steelers are going to do this year? Think they'll win the Super Bowl? How do I know if they're going to win the Super Bowl again? What do I say? I hope so but I sure don't know it. That's not the concept of hope in the New Testament. The hope concept in the New Testament is descriptive of that situation in which the future is absolutely certain. It is faith looking forward. It is faith being certain and receiving the assurance of what God promises for tomorrow. Our hope is the anchor for our souls. It is that which gives stability to our faith, is that when we stumble and trip today, when we become uncertain in our faith because of the afflictions, hope kicks in, and we are reminded of God's promise for tomorrow. And that's the great, great explanation for the behavior of the saints of the ages who were willing to go to the arena and go up against the lions to be human torches in the Garden of Nero because they knew where they were going. 
They had a hope that would never embarrass them or leave them ashamed. And so, he said, the hope that is seen isn't hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it. Not just patiently wait for it. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. How many times in this epistle already has Paul talked about that link between hope and perseverance, between perseverance and character? It's our hope that keeps us going. Likewise, he says, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. We don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, here is one of the most important passages in all the Bible that instructs us about the nature of godly prayer. We understand that our communion with God the Father is not a simple one-on-one communication between us and the Father. We know enough to say when we pray that we pray in the name of Jesus because we know that one of the most important roles that Jesus exercises even now is that He is our high priest in heaven, and He makes intercession for us every day. And so, when we pray, we pray to the Father through the Son, and we implore our intercessor to intercede for us. Please, Jesus, carry our prayers and our requests to the Father. We don't dare appear in our own garments to make our requests, but we come before the throne of grace, garbed in your righteousness, and we plead for your intercession. We should always keep that in mind when we're praying, that Jesus is praying for us. And we ask Him to help us with our petitions. But prayer is a Trinitarian activity. It's not simply that we pray to the Father through the Son, but in this text we see that our great Helper in the very articulation of our prayers, the things that we address to Christ and to the Father are assisted by the help of the Holy Ghost. So when you pray, remember to ask the Holy Spirit to assist you in your prayers, because so many times we don't pray aright. We don't pray as we ought. And if you really want to see answers to prayer that will put uh, strength in your soul, pray according to the leading of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Spirit helps us to pray according to the will of God rather than the will of our flesh. 
You see, prayers answer when your prayers correspond to the will of the Father. If you ask God to do something that is not His will, you're, not, you're going to be frustrated. He'll answer your prayers. He'll say no. But when the Spirit helps us to pray as we ought and assists us, this one who searches the deep things of God, who knows our souls and who knows the very mind of the Father, when He helps us to pray, then we begin to pray according to the will of God. Finally, verse 28, one of the most popular, one of the most comforting, one of the most consoling verses in all of sacred Scripture. I just looked at the clock, and I thought, how in the world can I cover this in just a few moments? It's too rich. It's too deep. I'll just mention it, and then we'll explore it more deeply, God willing, next Sunday night. But listen to it just now and think about it this week. And we know, Paul says, we know. It's not that we just hope, but we know that all things work together for good. What? Boy, Paul, you may know it, but I find that hard to believe because I see things happening in my life, in my children's lives, in the community all around me. I can see no redemptive value in it whatsoever. I don't see how this could have any good consequence at all. Paul says, hey, we know all things work together for good for a restricted group, for those who love the Lord, for those who are the called according to His purpose. Again, I want to explore that with more time, God willing, next week. But think about it this week. Really think about this, this text that you've heard a million times. All things work together for good. Notice where this comes in the text. This comes at the grand conclusion of this announcement that the apostle has given to us that the suffering that we endure in this world isn't worthy to be compared with the glory that the Father has stored up that will be manifested in His children. And it's in light of that promise that Paul says, then in light of that, then we can be certain that everything that happens in this world, as painful as it may be for this present moment, is working. This is working with that, which is working with this, which is working with that. They're all working together in a grand symphony for good. For those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. This is one of the most profound elements of the doctrine of providence that we encounter anywhere in Scripture. And for the third time, I'm going to say, I'm not going to expound it any further tonight. We're just going to have to tune in next week for Romans 8:28. Let's pray.
Our Father and our God, how easily we become frightened, discouraged, downcast, how fragile is our faith, how weak is our hope, when all we can do is keep our eyes fixed on the present moment, and we've lost sight of that glory that You have promised for tomorrow. We thank Thee that, oh, that You were pleased to subject the whole creation to pain, that You have not abandoned it, You will not destroy it, but You will redeem it. We thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.